want to tell you that you're not going to be able to strategize yourself out of this one. Never found yourself in that position? I call them brick wall moments. You hit a brick wall, you realize no amount of strategy is going to help me. There are no tactics that will solve this situation. Can I get a witness? If you've ever been there, show me your hand. If you ever hit a brick wall. It should be everybody. Unless maybe you're 14. It's one of the things about youth, right? You don't really understand what life is about. Enjoy it. Enjoy your youth. It's a fun time. 17 was a great year. By the time I hit 24, I'd hit a, hit a brick wall. I think the first brick wall I hit was when I was 19, I think. You hit a brick wall, you realize, I can't solve this. One of the um, more common experiences that many of us can relate to is a health crisis. Everything's hunky-dory until you get sick. And all of a sudden, when you get sick, you hit a brick wall, you realize, whoa. In fact, I think getting sick is probably one of the most profound teachers we can experience as a human being. Because it's not until you hit that moment that you realize your helplessness. Isn't that a horrible feeling? I can't fix this. You know, it can be as benign as a really bad bout of the flu. Nikki got food poisoning last week. We still don't know from what. It was awful. Almost as to take her to the hospital. And in those moments, and I've experienced it many a time through our 23 years of marriage, just feeling helpless, like I can't fix this. I remember when our kids got fevers for the first time. You go to shoppers, you find the one in town that's open 24 hours, and you've got to find the medicine. And the fact that you can buy the medicine at shoppers means it's not really going to work. <laughs> you don't know this, though. You're a young parent. You're just, you'll do anything. You ever been in hospital with a child? We had a lady in our congregation when I was young was young once. All she ever wanted was a baby. She came out of an abusive marriage. Eventually was able to find a kind Christian man to remarry. By this time she was quite past her childbearing years. So they were trying for months and months and months to have a baby. If you've walked that journey, you know how difficult that can be. Miscarriage after miscarriage. And finally had their miracle baby. How many weeks was he? Was he 20... 24, like right on the threshold, right? You're not really supposed to survive unless your pass is at 25 weeks, Jen? Yeah, 25 weeks. So this sweet little boy is born 24 weeks. He's in the NICU. They think he's going to die, so they call the pastor. Don't hurry into the pastorate, I'm just saying. Let's call the pastor. So uh, they call me in to pray for him. They, uh, let me lay hands on this baby in his incubator. It's one of the only times in my life it's ever happened. The Spirit of God rose up in me. I started praying a ridiculous prayer. I prophesied over this baby that he will live and not die. And even as I was doing it in the hospital, <laughs> my, my thinking mind is like, you're crazy. You shouldn't be saying this, let alone out loud. But I couldn't help myself. Prophesy. <laughs> baby lived and didn't die. He's alive today. But I'll tell you what, in that moment, only the Spirit of God will do. Brick wall. Maybe you've suffered a relational fracture that you can't fix. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that horrible? It's horrible. It could be divorce for you. It could be um, 
just garden variety relational breakage. Could be a dear friendship, could be a business partnership. And you realize, I can't fix this. Maybe you had a business that failed. How awful was that? Like So awful, right? It's a brick wall. Remember, do you, you can remember the moment when you realized it was over. Right? You can remember that moment? You ever get fired? You know how all the blood drains from your extremities? You get cold? Because all the blood's rushing to your heart? Because your body thinks you're going to die. It's awful. It could be as benign as the ice storm. Remember the ice storm two years ago? Shut the city down. Like, we live in the West. We're a developed country. <laughs> Until the ice hits. All the power's out. Nobody could go anywhere. We had a fireplace. <laughs> we heated our house with fire. <laughs> like in prehistory. <laughs> this is how thin the veneer is between what you think is your organized perfect life and chaos. And all it takes to remind you that chaos is real is a brick wall moment. So I'm here to tell you this morning, because I love you, that um, <coughs> I might be on the verge of crying the whole sermon. It's crazy. Um, the next time you hit a brick wall moment, I hope you remember, as a result of today's sermon, that um, you don't need a better strategy. What you need is new birth. <laughs> Somebody shout. Come on now. <laughs> all right, I'll show you what I mean out of Ezra 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekaniah, the son of Yehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as he had said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Yehohanan, the son of Elashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. That if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. No kidding. It was the ninth month, December, on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rains. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Yehaziah, Yehaziah yeah, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shevatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the exiles did so, 
Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now we get a list of 112, those guilty of intermarriage. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Masayah, Eliezer, Yariv, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Yeshua, the son of Yozadak, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Imer, Hanani, and Zebadiah, the sons of Harim, Masaya, Eliyah, Shemaya, Yehiel, Uziah, of the sons of Pashchur, Eliohanai, Masaya, Ishmael, Netan, Eli, Ozabad, and Elasah. So you hear these names, I want you to think that each person is a person, and each person has a wife, and some of them have kids that they're about to banish. It's awful. Of the Levites, Yozavad, Shimei, Kelayah, that is Kelida, Pathahiyah, Judah, Eliezer, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Iziah, Malkiah, Miyamin, Elazar, Hashaviah, and Benayah, the sons of Ilam. Listen to all these men. Mataniah, Zachariah, Yehiel, Abdi, Yeremot, and Eliyah. The sons of Zatu, Eliwanai, Eliashiv, Mataniah, Yeremot. Where am I? There's so many words. Zabad and Azizah. Of the sons of Bebai were Yohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai. The sons of Bani were Meshulam, Maluch, Adiyah, Yashuv, Sheil, Yeremot. All these guys had jobs. All these guys had histories. The sons of Pachat Moab, Adna, Chelal, Banayah, Masayah, Matana, Bezalel, Binui. Binui means the builder. Binui. And Menashe, the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishiyah, God's man. Malkiah, God is my king. Shemayah, Shimon, God has heard me. Benjamin, son of my right hand. Maluch and Shemariah, God is my guardian. Of the sons of Hashum, Matenai, Matana, Zabad, Elifelet, Yeremai, Manashe, and Shimei. The sons of Bani, Madai, Amram, Yuel, Benayah, Bedayah, Chelui. Vaniah, Merimot, Eliashiv, God will return. No kidding. Mataniah, Matenai, Yasu, the sons of Binui, Shimai, Shelemiah, Natan, given by God. Adiyah, Machana, Debai, the divided tribe. Shashai, Sharai, Azarael, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Yosef. Joseph, we know him. The sons of Nebo, Yeiel, Mathatiah, Zabad, Zebina, Yadai, Yoel, and Benayah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even borne children. You're like, what a, what, what, a, what a depressing chapter. Tell me about it. Like, I sat down with this chapter this week, and I was like, man, I can't preach this chapter. And I've known I've had to preach this chapter for a year. This one was pretty hard to figure out. Pretty hard to figure out. Um, as you seek to rebuild the broken places in your life, I'm going to take Ezra 10, section by section, to show you why Jesus is the only answer that will do. That's your thesis. I'm going to break it down section by section. There's eight sections. Okay, I'm going to use these sections to show you why Jesus is the only answer that will do. Section 1, verses 1 through 5. Here's what this section is saying. Um, you're not going to be able to rebuild the broken places in your life till you realize something is wrong, until you admit it, until you refocus on hope, until you make an agreement based on a bottom line law and figure out how to keep your promises. How do we know that something was wrong? Well, because in verse 1, Ezra makes a confession. Ezra prayed and made confession. Interesting in the Hebrew here, the word is vekehetodato. Um, so the vekehe is like, and as he. 
Todato is the word for confession. Vekehe todato. And as he made confession. Except the word for confession comes from the word toda, tod, toda, thanksgiving. So in this context here, his confession is linked to thanksgiving, which is pretty strange considering the circumstances. We see here a very important lesson for you as you seek to rebuild the broken places in your life. Start with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you are perfect and I am not. That's good confession. All right? You don't need to beat yourself up. Thank you, God, that you are good and I am not. That's a good start to confession. If you want to fix your life, you need to realize something is wrong and you must admit your need. Can you relate to not wanting to admit neediness? This is, this, is, this is very much a factor in our culture. We are a culture that longs to appear strong at any cost. We're a culture that pretends that everything is fine, even when it's not. Okay, Hopefully the gospel is reforming us. Hopefully it is renovating us. Moving us from a place of self-sufficiency to a place where we admit our need and we depend upon God. You want to fix your life, realize something is wrong, and admit your need. And then refocus on hope. We see this in verse 2. Even now there is hope for Israel. You ever felt like, why is there still hope? You found yourself in that brick wall moment, feeling like there is no hope for me. There is still hope. Why? Hear me, church. Hear me, Selena. Because God gets the last word. He gets the last word. There are no surprises to Him. Everything you're experiencing exists within the context of His omniscience. He is all-knowing. There is no surprise for Him. He gets the last word. How do we know? Well, I mean, I could take you to 17 examples, but I'll go to Revelation 22:13, where we read Him saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here's the thing about hope. Hope is rooted in God's goodness, not yours. Do I need to say it again or did you get it deep in your heart? Hope is rooted in God's goodness, not yours. This is illustrated beautifully as we continue with verse 3, still in section 1. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. I find it um, pretty horrible and hilarious that they think the answer to one broken covenant is to make another one i got to preach this like a Christian, not a rabbi. I know! We broke the first covenant. We'll just make another one. Okay? Here's the teachable point. It's not sophisticated. (laughs) Stop it with the deal-making. You ever try to make deals with God? If you do this, I'll do that. If you do that, I'll do this. It's embarrassing, right? But you've probably done it. Stop it with the deal-making. Okay, let me explain to you the roots of covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to be his friend. He commands him to go to a land that he will show him. He says that he will make of him a great nation. He tells him, in you, all the families of earth will be blessed. This is a messianic promise. This is the first time covenant shows up in the human story. The story continues in Genesis 15 with God's reaffirmation of his covenant with Abram. He says, look, I'm still going to be your God. You're still going to be my person. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram is is Israeli. He talks back, even to God. I'm from Israel. I know that this is true. He says, "Uh, sounds good, but I still have no heir. Have you missed this one point? Cheeky God says to him, 
Um, turn your eyes towards heaven and number the stars if you can. So shall your descendants be. He then commands him to make a sacrifice. Find a bunch of animals, cut them in half, lay them out facing each other. He's invoking here an ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony. What you would do is cut a bunch of animals in half at the city gates, and then you and the person making the covenant would walk between the dead animals, declaring with your actions, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals if I break this covenant. Abram would have understood exactly what God is doing. But what happens? Abram falls asleep. I don't know if he's dreaming or if it's a true vision. Either way, it doesn't matter. And as he's lying there on the ground, he sees a flaming pot appear. I'm sure this is God carrying the flaming pot. We don't see the figure of God. We just see the pot pass between the carcasses of the dead animals. This is one of the most important moments in all the Hebrew scriptures because it illustrates to us who keeps covenant. Should have been God and Abram walking between the carcasses. Abram's asleep on the ground. God himself will handle the covenant. Thank you very much. This is why I am not Jewish. Genesis 17. He visits him the third time. The Bible loves to write in threes. This is where we see circumcision and name change. He tells him he'll be the father of many nations and that kings, again a messianic province, will come from his line. He says, I'll establish my covenant with you and your offspring forever and I will be their God. Here's the only point I want you to remember about covenants. God is the one who keeps it. The story of the Bible is the story of human failure and God's mercy. Human failure and God's mercy. From Adam and Eve to Elizabeth and Steve, nobody ever kept covenant with God. I was like thinking of all the examples, and I thought maybe Enoch did. Because God liked him so much that he took him away. He never died. He was God's friend. God liked him so much, he just took him away. I was like, okay. We haven't kept covenant, which is why God sent God the Son. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became the God-man. Fully God and fully man. God in a body, walking around on the face of the earth. Why? To do a couple things. One, to perfectly fulfill his Father's will. To never sin once, even though he was tempted in every way in which we'll ever be tempted. Yet he was without sin. Secondly, he came to earth to become the man Jesus, to go to the cross. Why? So that he could die. Why? Because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. You know this is true. Every time you sin against somebody, something dies in your relationship. Anytime anyone has ever sinned against you, something has died in that relationship. The wages of sin is death. And so, God became the man, Jesus, to go to a cross to suffer and die in your place for your sin. So that the penalty that you could never pay, because you could never die enough to make your sins right with God. And it'd be totally stupid for God to make you to be his friend forever and then to cast you out of his presence forever. But because we could not fix it, God does. And as God the Son made flesh, hangs upon that cross, the Father lays upon him the iniquities of us all and he punishes him in your place for your sin. And not just you, but the sins of the world. So that at any point in history, anyone who should come to Jesus, confess him as Lord, and ask him for forgiveness, would then have that atonement applied to their life. That once and for all, final death to conquer sin, would now be applied to their account. And in that great and glorious moment of salvation, Jesus' righteousness would be applied to you, and your badness would be applied to him. 
This is what C.S. Lewis, the greatest Christian writer who ever lived, referred to as the great exchange. Jesus' goodness comes to you. Your badness goes to him. In Jesus, you are the beneficiary of the great exchange. So let's make an agreement to focus on Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, and shift our focus from trying harder to keep our promises. Let's shift it from trying harder to worshiping the promise keeper. I'm reading about Buddhism again. I studied it in my undergraduate degree. My minor was in world religions. So I'm reading a great Buddhist tome again. And as usual, I like Buddhism, but it always leaves me wanting. Because it's always some version of, well, if you just get the Eightfold Path a little better, you'll be good. If you just get the Four Great Truths a little more locked down, you'll be fine. That's what Hinduism teaches us. If you just balance your karmic debt a little better, you'll be okay. Right? This is what Taoism teaches. This is what Shinto teaches. Okay, all of these faiths teach some version of the same thing. You have a karmic debt, and the key is to balance that karmic debt, to have more good than bad. I don't know how much time you've spent around yourself, but it's pretty clear to me that I am never going to attain balance, which is why I go to Jesus. Because at the cross, he doesn't just take some of my sin to restore balance. He, oh, I gotta say it! He takes it all! Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had cast a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Friend, he's the answer to all your sleepless nights. Section two. This is what happens in section two and verse six. What's Ezra having? A sleepless night. He can't sleep. He's so overcome with his sin and the sin of his people. Have you ever had a sleepless night? Somebody holler at your boy. Okay? Jesus is the answer to your sleepless nights. If you suffer from night terrors, you need to meet you some nighttime, Jesus. Oh, I'll tell you about nighttime, Jesus. Jenny already told you about nighttime, Jesus, but half of you weren't here, so you missed it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, for your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Somebody say something. Hallelujah. Hallelujah will do. If you're trying to like get more expressive, you can just start saying hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Don't you want to follow a God who doesn't fear the dark? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. As you seek to rebuild your life, Jesus is the answer to your dark night of the soul. He reigns in a city where he's preparing you a place where no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Tell your problems about Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. Preaching hard enough for you today? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes? Look, either you're a citizen of heaven or you're not. So 
So like decide already and start living like it. Because this story is as real as winter's rain. That's how real faith is, section 3, verses 7 through 15. This is real life. They send an edict out. We screwed up. Come and face the consequences. If you don't come and face the consequences, there'll be consequences. This is a church growth strategy, by the way. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, every man shows up. There's always a price to be paid. Sometimes you just got to sit in the December rain and confess your sin and then do what's right and consecrate yourself and get propitiation. These are the things that are happening in verses 7 through 15. Let me make a couple quick points on this. I'm almost done. Consequences in December rain in verses 7 through 9. I grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is awful November, December, and January. The sun comes out in March and doesn't go away until the end of October. It's glorious. It's like living in Southern California. But November comes, and it's Vancouver, but worse. Every day, cold rain with wind. Okay, so this happens in the midst of that winter. They are all sitting in the open square. I've been there before the house of God in the pouring, driving December rain. Okay, it's as real as it gets. Your life may be screwed up because you've screwed it up. So the answer in that moment when you realize that the brick wall you've hit is of your own making is to sit down in the rain in front of the house of God and embrace the suck. Just embrace it. Just realize, this is my fault. I did this. Right? When you take very honest stock of your life, I'm quite sure that like me, you will realize that we broke the world. We broke the world. Not some foreigner, right? Not some degenerate who's different than us somehow. No, no, we broke the world. Nothing changes until we confess and do what's right. This is what's at issue in verses 10 through 12. Ezra said, you've broken faith. Now then, make confession. And do his will. This is great. I love this point. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. You know what this is in Hebrew? This is awesome. I earned my money with this one interpretive leap. Ve'asu retzono. Ve'asu, and do retzono, his will. Except retzono means his rightness. Make confession and do his rightness. This will preach good. God is righteous. He made you in his image and likeness to be like him. So copy him and be righteous, which means what? Doing the right thing in every situation. You're like, how on earth would I do that? You would do that by following Jesus in love. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son keeps on cleansing us from all our sins. Which is why, unlike section 4, we don't need to obsessively pour over records of who did what wrong, when, where, why, and how because the only records that matter are those names kept in the Lamb's Book of Life as illustrated in Revelation chapter 20. 
Here's a very important point. Hold on to this. I'm going to give you a chance to illustrate this in your life as part of ministry time later today. As you seek to rebuild your life, you're going to need to stop obsessing about all the wrongs you've done and all the wrongs that have been done to you. You will not be able to rebuild your life if you continue obsessing over all the wrongs you've done and all the wrongs done to you. You need to let it go. You're singing the song in your head. Because like in section 5 with the priests, or section 6 with the Levites, or section 7 with the people of Israel who clearly didn't live up to their names, Malkiah, God is my king. No, fool, your sex drive was. El-Azar, God is my help. So uh, why did you live in your own strength? Zechariah, I will remember God. Until the next Canaanite babe saunters by. Yehiel, God will be what he will be exactly. And in this case, he's going to be your butt kicker. Hananiah, God will have mercy. Thank God, because we are going to need it. Let me point out the beauty of this horrible last section. We see 112 names. We see 112 failures. Somebody say touche. Touche, Pastor Todd. Touche. You just stabbed me real good with the gospel. 112 names, 112 failures. This is why we're going to take section 8 prophetically. And worship team, you can join me on stage. Section 8. Verse 44, the last part, only works if you interpret it prophetically. So as we do so, we're going to remember two things. I waited the whole sermon to get to this point. Because you've been thinking it's pretty horrible that God is going to cause all these women to be banished along with their children. And if you think that's pretty horrible, I want you to say that I agree. And the way I deal with horrible things is I remember that every horrible thing that ever happened was laid on Jesus at the cross, and he paid the cosmic price for it. And one day he will set those wrongs right. We cannot fix the world, which is why he does. But I can go even one better. Yes, I can. I can preach to you this morning. I can remind you that the first time we see a woman and child dispossessed and cast out, their names are Hagar and Ishmael, the wife and son of the patriarch Abraham. And as they wander in the desert and almost die of thirst, God himself shows up and he saves them. God steps in and redeems. We never find out What happens to the wives and the children of the 112? But verse 44 has a prophetic promise embedded in it on which you can hang all your hurt, all your hope, and all your questions. Here it is. Verse 44b, the women, sorry, the women had born children in the midst of a very hopeless chapter that might be a very startling echo of the brokenness of your life. Let me be a good gospel preacher and remind you that if you want to rebuild the broken places in your life, you are going to need a child to be born for. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward even forever the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this you see if you're going to rebuild your life you don't need a better strategy my friends you need new birth 